Parent Advocate Podcast, a show where we celebrate, defend, support, and uplift the voices of the LGBTQIA community. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hello, everyone. Lisette here, she, her, Aya. The mission of the Parent Advocate Podcast is to elevate conversations and reframe narratives around trans and non-binary youth to help change hearts and minds. Each week, we bring you our take on all things happening in the world from the perspective of two parents of BIPOC transgender kids. We said, I get gassed each and every time we do another episode of this damn show. I get so excited that we built this platform and we get just to talk shit every day. I know, it's so exciting. And I'm even more excited about our special guest today, Joelle Ratner. Well, welcome once again, everyone, to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. We said, another week's in the books. What you been up to? Okay, so I'm late to this game, but I got the COVID vaccine booster. Okay. And it knocked me out. I slept a lot yesterday. <laughs> okay. I feel fuzzy today. So just be patient with me. You, you know, know, the conspiracy theorists are going to tell you that now you got something. That's that that's something in that drug is now kicked your ass and you're going to regret getting the COVID vaccine. Well, yeah, because they gave me a little bit of COVID again. They're like, there you go. Build up those immunities. <laughs> little again. dose will do you. <laughs> so, yeah, it's been foggy. It's been a crappy week of anti-trans legislation, as you yes. know. Yes. We're in Arizona, but we got some things that we're working on that we're looking forward to. And so I'll have to share more later. Um, nice. But that's about it. Life is good. What about you? I just got back from CHOP with Hobbs and it was like his six month check-in. Everything was going great. Gained a couple pounds, grew an inch. And we are like six months shy of his 18th birthday. So that means surgery is on the horizon and it was just it was just interesting to see him talk to the doctor, have this conversation. When we first started, I was talking to the doctor. Now I'm on my phone. Now I'm just letting him do his thing because he's taken ownership of his health care and he's about to go to college. So he's really like coming into his own. It was just nice to see. So that happened. That's so exciting. I always get excited when we celebrate the milestones. Yeah, it's true. It's really true. Um, what else? I was at the Garden State Equality event at Kane University. I did a presentation on understanding mirror sciences and ACEs or PACEs, positive and adverse childhood experiences. And it was the first time I delivered that presentation in person. It's only ever been on the interwebs. So that was good to get out, get in front of people, talk to people. It was really about the the tobacco cessation and the connection between tobacco smoking and adverse childhood experiences and how just learning about ACEs helps people to get past them. So it was good. It was nice. That was something that I that I did. I really enjoyed. And I I think you saw that I got in on the of course trend and I did a TikTok video using the I'm the parent of a black trans kid. Of course I prompt. So hope you checked it out. I loved it. It was so good. Thank you. Yeah, it was I'm gonna share it, but I needed to wait a second. So I anyway, just shared our last episode. We are we are talking about ourselves once again. And we have a whole show to do. So no more. Let's get to today's topics. Let's do it. 
So Tennessee Republicans passed a bill allowing discrimination in marriage against same-sex couples. The bill, which was brought by Republican State Representative Monty Fritz, claims to protect the rights of the officiants, even though Tennessee law already permits individuals to decline to officiate at a marriage if they choose. In other words, the proposed law is totally unnecessary. As are all of the laws that they're trying to pass. Like, I don't understand why we have to keep pretending that it isn't just hateful. Because that's all it is. It's just hate wrapped mm -hmm. up in a bill. Mm-hmm calling it religious freedom, so annoying. The Congressional Equality Caucus called out House Republicans in a scathing report, claiming that conservative lawmakers are obsessed with attacking LGBTQIA plus people. The Equality Caucus, which promotes LGBTQIA rights in Congress, highlighted how in 2023, House Republicans held more than 50 anti-LGBTQ votes on the House floor, while more than 95 anti-LGBTQ plus amendments two bills going to the floor and introduce more than 55 anti-LGBTQIA bills. They can't pass a single piece of serious legislation that actually benefits the American people, but they have this ridiculous hard-on for LGBTQ plus people, as if anyone's life is being improved because they introduce or pass this legislation. Of course, this totally tracks with Republicans. Wait, wait, can we just talk about how the, the whole he gets us ads that ran during the Super Bowl that everyone was like, oh, that's so nice, what a nice message, was totally full of shit? Like, come to find out that Hobby Lobby or Come Near or Servant Foundation or some other far-right religious organization masking and rating like they care about Jesus, it reeked of pure hypocrisy. And now, of course, it's come out that those people were just full of shit. I'm glad that my eyes weren't burned. I only uh, jumped on to watch the Usher concert. So I was like, woo, missed that. You really, miss. you really, really were spared. It was, and I mean, it was on the rip on some bullshit. I saw it and I was like, oh, this is finna be some bullshit. And it was. And I want to know how they convinced the actors to be in it. Like, they brought no. in some diverse people. I think that was all AI generated because that's what it looked like. It looked like some bullshit, like some literal, like the diner where you had all the different generation of dead actors in the same mm. diner. It was that type yeah. of shit. Like it was an improbable set of things put together to make it appear like all these fuck faces were getting their feet washed. It was just a hot mess. It was a hot mess. Can we also talk about how the right-wing media is fixated on making the shooter at Joel Osteen's megachurch a trans person? Apparently, the shooter used a number of different aliases, which included what many would consider typically male names. And because of that, they're saying the shooter was trans. Of course instead they're doing of just, that. Instead of just fraud. Nope. They see trans everywhere. Weren't we just talking about the school board rep who was accusing the 16-year-old female basketball player of being trans? Of course they're doing that. How else do you promote this boogeyman if you don't actually have bad trans people to target and blame for everything? They just make shit up. Duh. We said, once again, we're getting all caught up in these damn topics and we've got to get to our guest today. Joelle Rettner is a first-generation Creole-American children's author from the Washington, D.C. metro area, a social and reproductive justice advocate and community birth worker. Joelle earned a B.A. in Spanish from Spelman College and an M.A. in International Studies from American University. A former U.S. diplomat with the Department of State who toured the globe advancing U.S. foreign policy, Joelle's current passions involve sharing stories that celebrate Black pride and queer joy. Joelle lives in a cabin in the woods with their partner and three tiny humans. When they 
are not writing, you can find them gardening or tending to their small homestead. Everyone, please welcome Joelle Rettner to our show. Welcome to the show, Joelle. We're so excited to have you as one of our guests and welcome to season two. Thank you so much. I'm I'm so excited to be here. I was really geeked when I got the invitation, so I'm looking forward to chatting with both of you. Well, let's get right into it. Joelle, you started your career as a diplomat traveling the world, much like my father, and then you shifted into becoming an author and writing children's books. Marley's Pride is your debut book. What inspired you to take that leap and what stories inspire you as an author? So I worked for the State Department for about, I would say almost a decade. And some of that time was overseas and some of that time was domestically. And I really enjoyed the work that I was doing. I've always been passionate about helping others and um, the idea of being able to make a difference for such large swaths of people was, was something that really drew me to the Foreign Service very early on in my career. But I have to say that I'm sure you both know, I know Lizette knows for sure, that policy work can be a grind. It's, it's really hard, especially when you're working at the macro levels to be able to see tangible change and navigating the intricacies of working in the federal government could be exhausting like the, it moves like molasses and honestly unless you're working on a country with a lot of political interests you could often find that things that you're passionate about issues that you're passionate about might not be priorities for the that current administration so that's a long way of saying i think i got burnt out i think i got frustrated with not being able to see enough change and recognizing that the work that i was doing was very much tied to political whims and that was it was exhausting after 12 years so i decided that you know enough is enough i'm gonna try something different around that time i had two young children and i decided to focus my efforts on being present for them my family had traveled a lot as a child and they weren't able to be as hands-on as I, I had wanted them to. So I poured my energy into the kids and the writing came along the way when uh, one of our children started exploring their gender identity. And I realized how, you know, the, the first thing we did was like, okay, what do we do? What do we do? How do we support our kid? And we turned to books because we recognize how important books are and how they serve as windows and, and sliding glass doors and mirrors for children. And to our dismay, there just weren't very many books that at the time that featured gender expansive children and very few of them were intersectional. Everyone kept us point, kept pointing us to the same stories over and over again and it got really frustrating and so I decided hey maybe I could start writing and that's kind of where everything began um in terms of stories that inspire me I'm a queer kid lit fanatic I love we're reading like YA and I love reading picture books and middle grade I'll read I don't know why I'm like I'm really drawn to children's literature I think that it really calls it helps me connect to my inner child who's still dying to come out and play so it comes out in my reading list so I really enjoy stories with like gender bending characters or uh, T for T love love stories yeah it's been it's been a joyful ride to be able to relive my youth through through my reading. I love that. Well, as you know, our podcast is about parenting BIPOC TGNC kids. 
And when you and I first met, we talked a lot about the fact that it was hard to find spaces for us to connect and share with one another, with other BIPOC parents. Have you found that that has changed at all? And do you hope that stories like Marley's Pride help show other BIPOC families of TGNC kids that they aren't alone? Yeah. So honestly, I can't say that I found that space, that safe space for other BIPOC parents of trans and gender non-conforming children to really connect and be able to have open dialogue, unfortunately. Part of it could certainly be the space that we live in, which is a very conservative area, kind of small town feel. There, There are some progressive pockets, but there's not a lot of diversity, unfortunately. So that hasn't happened. However, I will say there is a local queer center which we where we found a lot of family. I haven't personally connected with like other parents, but our children have been able to go to Pride events there. One of our kids does like a Dungeons and Dragons event there. And so even though my spouse and I haven't necessarily found that community that we were looking for, we're really grateful that our kids have been able to engage and interact with other children that share similar identities. And I would also add that while we haven't found other BIPOC families of trans and gender nonconforming children to connect with, we have been able to found chosen family that they're white, their kids are trans like ours. And so it has allowed us to have some sort of connection with other people that have some sort of lived experience that's comparable. It's not across the board, like there are things that we can't do that, you know, they can do comfortably, like living in really, I'm talking about near West Virginia type situations where there's no way we could live there, right? Like we would not feel safe, but they feel safe because they have, you know, they have certain privileges that that we don't have because of their racial identity. However, having those close networks of people that have certain understandings of the realities of raising trans and or gender non-conforming children has given us some sort, some support along the way, I would say. And then your question about Marley's Pride helping other families feel less alone. Absolutely, absolutely. Like when, when our kid first came out, the first thing I did was like try to find other people of color like us who are going through similar experiences. And it was really, really hard. I think I might've found like one activist that was very vocal. And unfortunately I feel awful, but her name escapes me right now. Um, oh, Jody Patterson. All right, yes. But in terms of people like me that that were just, you know, not necessarily at the forefront of the activism struggle and I just didn't find anybody. And my hope is that by writing this book, people open up and are willing to share their stories and that oftentimes it takes that first person willing to step up and just like share and be vulnerable for other people to recognize, wow, our similar, our stories are very similar and it really connects us in, in that way. And hopefully it'll encourage other people to also be willing to speak up, to share their truths and, and in the process, find community. It's so funny because Jody is a fellow Spellman grad. So I'm like, oh boy, if you didn't get that one, we was going to have to talk. But luckily you did say- you I did know. say that today was not the best day. And so you may need a little grace. So we're going to hard pass, but you got it. That's, that's the most important thing. You I got did. it. Okay. I, I wasn't, sh I was ashamed for a minute. I said, like, Oh, Joel, how dare you? How dare you? But it, it came, it came back to me. It came back. to. Me. So you said a couple of things that I, I want to kind of dig it on. The first is living in a conservative area. You recognize that the things that you would otherwise have the access you would have to, to, to different types of families, different types of people is somewhat limited, but in the midst of these national efforts to ban books in schools, why do you think it was so important to bring Marley's 
prior to life. And then as an ancillary to that, what do you hope people learn when they read Marley's story? So full disclosure, the publishing industry is just like the federal government, like really, really, really slow. So oftentimes these stories are crafted, they could be crafted like six, seven, eight years, and it takes that long for them to be published. So I actually wrote Marley's Pride in maybe perhaps in 2020. So it, it's been a while and it took a while to get sold, et cetera, and to go get the illustrator and all the other parts that go into creating a picture book. Book banning wasn't as rampant at that time as it is now. But with that said, had I written it today, I wouldn't have done anything differently. Like I would have still incorporated the same characters. I would have still insisted that the representation be present because even though writing these books that might be considered quote unquote inflammatory, I don't know, like in, I'll, I'll just use the word inflammatory. I just don't see it any other way, just given who I am and given who, what my family dynamics are, I feel like censoring that part of myself, the queer part of myself, the queer part of my family by writing what would be considered like quote unquote safe stories, quote unquote palatable stories would force me to deny who I was, who I am, right? And like in the process deny my child and that's just not an option. I've, I've been told a couple of times like, hey, do you wanna say that in your story? It's maybe too queer, you know, remember book banning. But the whole point is if you do self-censure, yourself, then they've won, right? They've achieved the goal, which is to make you disappear, to make you feel small and erase yourself for all intents and purposes. So having Marley's Pride come out now for me was the perfect timing because the book centers the idea of trans joy. You know, there's there's nothing, there's no bullying in this book. You know, this is not a kid who's insecure about who, who they are. While they have anxiety, it has nothing to do with their identity and they have support from all levels of the community. So this book defies the narrative that being gender non-conforming or being trans is a bad thing, a scary thing, something that you don't want to be. So for me, it feels like, not it feels like, I know that this book is a form of resistance to the book bans, which are basically trying to say otherwise. What do you hope people learn when they read Marley's story? The reason I created this story was because there were enough books out there that were showcasing trans stories as centered around their coming out journeys. And what I wanted people to see is that there's so much more to the trans community, to the gender non-conforming community, that these children's identities, yes, they, they are queer and they are, insert the blank, right? And I really wanted to highlight that to step outside of just that aspect of who they are. And again, to stress the joyful piece of it from the color schemes that the illustrator chose to you know the word choices and whatnot this really was meant to be a celebration of queer identities trans identities and that's what i hope people get out of this story that we're beautiful you know beautiful black bipoc trans gender non-conforming kids you were loved and you are meant to be here and we welcome you and you know stand tall in who you are and stand proud. That was really what I'm hoping people will get out of this. I think too, what I loved um, about the book, and thank you for giving us a little sneak peek, um, were the resources at the end, right? Like that you got to experience this whole story, a day in the life of Marley, um, you know, getting ready to go to Pride. And then like, if you had questions or your kid had questions, you have this large resource guide at the end. When you initially wrote the book, did you know you were going to put resource, like a resource guide at the end for that? or was that added later on? That was absolutely part of the initial 
creative journey that went along with um, Marley's Pride. Uh, it was important that parents that are not familiar with certain words, terminologies, history had an opportunity to be able to get a one-stop shop for the most part right here in the book. And so for the person who doesn't have, who doesn't know about HRC, right? Who doesn't know about all the other resources that are available to dig into these topics, this was an opportunity to have it in this book so that parents could have more co candid conversations with their children on these topics without having to go up elsewhere in that moment. But there are also websites on there and other places where they can go down into a deeper rabbit hole if this was just like the first stop in the journey. And one of the things that did happen along the, the process was we shifted the language quite a bit in the, the back matter, which is like the glossary and the resource at the back of the book. Barefoot and my editor, we were very intentional about the language being kid-centric and very much like addressing children so that if they felt compelled to read this on their own, that they could do so and understand the context with which we were sharing this history or Marley's context, right? Marley's world without necessarily needing to have to rely on the support of an adult and that adults can use it too. But I, I, what I really loved about working with Barefoot is the understanding that these are picture books and our audience is primarily children, right? And that they should be able to get like what's happening between the pages. And I think we've achieved that with this resource. Reading the book, I was struck by the realistic way that you captured Marley's angst, their anxiousness. And sometimes children, they do have a hard time understanding their feelings, especially if they haven't experienced them before. If it's a case of first impression, there's often that absence of language to help them communicate it. What resources do you recommend for parents now who wanna help their children better communicate their leads like Marley? So, you know, as an individual who has personally struggled with anxiety from, I'm realizing most of my life, I, I understand very, I relate very closely to Marley. I could see that like Marley is really a little me, a little bit of me, a little bit of my children, a little bit of, you know, people in my community captured in this like one child. And so our children also struggle at times with issues such as anxiety and sensory sensitivities. In terms of resources, I'm very much a fan of utilizing somatic practices as a way to help children better understand what's happening to their body and in the process help them try find the words to connect the two together and there's there are tons of websites and such that talk more about you know meditation and breath work and somatics and all of those have been really essential in our household i'm helping our children down to our youngest who is four and sometimes doesn't have the words to explain what's happening to her in the moment when she's feeling overwhelmed or frustrated. For us, somatics has allowed us to help our kids to reconnect to their bodies and understand like, what am I physically feeling in this moment? If I can't explain like what the emotion is, I could at least describe the sensation. And through that description, it helps us as parents to maybe help them narrow a little bit, get dig down deeper and narrow what is happening with them, you know, subconsciously or emotionally. So as an example, we would say, okay, it sounds like you're very upset. What's happening? What are you feeling currently in your body? My tummy feels achy and I feel angry and I want to hit something, right? And so as we sit and talk to them and give them the tools through that reconnection to the body, it's allowed us to help them in turn talk through what's happening with them physically and as 
that has happened like process their emotions it's not like a specific resource i think there's like a lot of them out there but like these are the types of tools that have been really instrumental for our family and i think that they're reflected to a certain degree in marley's pride as well where marley has like the breathing exercises the affirmations that they use i can't remember if we put the counting in there but all of these tools have been really essential for for us personally no i loved the counting and i loved all the tools that you incorporated like visually and also like in a simplistic way that you know kids could follow i also really loved the intergenerational relationship between zaza and marley and when i was reading your bio and doing research on you i realized you were first generation i don't know if we'd ever talked about being first gen because the three of us are first gen and for me personally it was because i was born here and my parents had come as young children but the tie to representation i think wasn't because they were still so close to family that reflected them and we were like straddling these cultural lines right and so I I loved that like Marley had somebody that reflected their experience back and it was intergenerational and like someone they could support like feel supported with so what does your experience as a first generation Haitian bring to the table when you're bringing stories like Marley's up to life and when you're talking to your children about like how to navigate this world that sometimes feels complex and hard for small people who are just wanting to belong and just wanting to see themselves reflect back in the world. Yeah, I think that growing up in a Haitian American household really exposed me to a different way of thinking, a really, I think, cross-cultural communication were some of the tools that we gained because the people around us weren't just Haitian. Like we grew up with people from a variety of sub-Saharan African countries and people from the Maghreb and from Europe. And I do believe that part of that was because our family's origin, they were accustomed to being with people that weren't just from Haiti. It's a very transient place. I think it allowed us to observe the world with a more open mind, just honoring our own lived experiences here and how different it was from the other people in our community even because we didn't live in a very, there wasn't a huge Haitian community where we lived. But I also have to say that there are certain aspects of the Haitian culture that influenced our decision to raise our children in a different fashion, specifically their, the emphasis on gender norms is really, really heavy and very binary culture. So those are the type of things growing up, there was an expectation that was very different for the children assigned female at birth versus assigned male at birth. And I can't say that that's obviously unique to Haitian culture per se, but I do think that being in a culture that has been colonized by white folks, that that's influenced the perception of, of gender, the lack of gender parity and things along those lines. So when it comes to how that has influenced my writing and the decision to include Zaza in the story, for me, it was the reverence of elders that comes with being a first generation individual that really I wanted to shine through in this story because my parent my all my grandparents are long gone and yet I still believe in ancestors and I feel their energies root me and they're you know in the central part of what grounds me and the members of this family right and so for me Zaza was a reflection of of just that that grounding character that you can look to and see hey 
this person's made it. They've, they might've struggled, but they've survived, not just survived, they've thrived. And they're here lighting the course, lighting the way for us, right? Showing us the path. So just as our ancestors do that for us, Zaza was a living, breathing representation that relationship and that connection to our past. And I wanted to make sure that Marley had that. Oftentimes I hear conversations about the value particularly of elders, of trans elders in the community because we know what the statistics look like, right? Especially when it comes to BIPOC trans people. And so finding those elders, they're invaluable. They're like gold and then some because they're a demonstration that we can make it. You don't have to to be scared. Like they've done this and we can follow their path. So Zaza, my hope was that they were able to encompass all of those things and really be a strong support system for Marley and the community. My favorite part of the book is when Zaza lifts Marley on their shoulders. I think because I have memories of my dad doing that when we were in big crowds. But it's also like a symbolic representation of the fact that like we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors. And so like, I didn't know if that was on purpose or not, but I got kind of teary when I was reading it because I was like, this is like symbolic in so many ways and also protective because I think our parents did that like as like, I'm going to carry you in a way that's fun for you, but also there's a lot of people. So there was like um, these feelings of like safety and protection and also like this deeper meaning around that. So I'm so glad that you two mentioned that what Zaza meant because I felt it when I was reading it's really beautiful I had a moment there but yes absolutely absolutely and and it's so powerful that that message came through in the illustrations because you know as a creator you're over here writing and you're hoping that your audience is really getting what you're trying to say like that the all the indirect messaging that's there, whether it's communicated through the illustrations or perhaps the specific wording that you're choosing is really relaying the deeper meaning of of the text, especially because it's a picture book and you don't want it to be didactic. So the fact that you as a reader that you picked up on it, it really means everything. There were so many little pieces like that in the book that I took away. That section also got me because when Zaza put Marley on their shoulders and Zaza was able to take in everything they had seen at ground level from Zaza's shoulders, it changed their perspective and they automatically started to feel calm. So I started to feel calm. And then they started to perceive the way the flags were waving, like the people were moving. And that type of imagery was really, again, it was, it was compelling to me because I was like, wow, that's really deep to hear through the lens of a child the way they perceive themselves moving through the world and the way they see the world moving because they've just gained a different perspective and that was very very meaningful and moving to me but something that also moved me was the way you incorporated the history of the transgender movement of the lgbtq liberation movement in the story because i think that's something that a lot of people would probably miss the marsha p johnson the sylvia rivera the fact that zaza was receiving an activism award for their work in this space, I thought was really powerful and not something that you traditionally see in kids' books. So that got me because I was just like, wait, this is for children how old? And they're coming with this level of knowledge of self, which is so important because we said and I talk about it all the time. Children have to see possibility models. And in this book, there are so many possibility models, a model of a child overcoming their own anxiety and their own issues to feel comfortable in a space that they otherwise wouldn't. An acknowledgement that that's a real thing for lots of children and tools and tips for how to overcome it. Seeing a child themselves practice some of those tactics themselves to 
get calm and be comfortable. You were weaving a lot of those elements into your story. And I wanted to just ask you, how did you decide what was going to be in the book when you ultimately started writing? So I am an intuitive writer. I let it come in and what flows. Like some people have outlines. I want this, this, and this. Like this is the framework of my story and now let me dive in. That's just not my flow. That's just not how I write. I really do allow whatever I'm feeling in the moment to lay itself out on the page and then I, I go from there. The anxiety piece was really critical for me to be incorporated into the book because I was really struggling with my own mental health at the time I wrote this book. And I saw this as an opportunity to channel some of my experience into this story and perhaps in the process kind of share my own struggles with my children finding a really easy way of depicting to them you know what's going on with marley like mommy feels that too sometimes that sensation where they can't catch their breath and their heart is like thumping so hard so i knew that that was going to be a key component of the story and i also i think I write also what I see and I spend a lot of time with my kids, <laughs> like a lot of time with my kids. They're homeschooled and so we have a lot of conversations and from a very early age, our children have shown us that certain things are triggers for them. So one of my children wears the noise canceling headphones and has since they were since she was a toddler, I believe. Piercing noises would scare her, construction noises would scare her. And not a lot of people recognize the value of these really simple tools, but that make a really big difference for children. So I really just wanted to see my family, like literally, I feel like I picked my family and our experience and like plopped it in a book. It was just like, here you go, look at this family. This is us, raw, unfiltered, this is us. And I'm writing this book because I know we're not the only family like this, you know? Like a lot of books demonstrate children that are like brave and strong and courageous and nothing scares them and like really, really confident. And that's great. That's fantastic. And I think it's really important to have those stories. And it's also important for kids to acknowledge and understand that if you do have anxiety, if you know, you're scared, that those are also completely acceptable that other people feel those those feelings too and here are some things that you can do to work through them right like i wanted to make sure that this was as inclusive as possible and framing it within the backdrop of pride was also very intentional because our family struggles to go to pride our kids have a really hard time it's very loud it's extremely crowded and even though marley was able to make it through and overcome their fears. My kids often don't. We often leave. Well, we we talk through it, we figure out if we're gonna make it, we get there and reassess the situation. You have your headphones, you know, you have your lavender essential oils, you have your tools. How are you feeling? Not feeling good? Okay, well, we're gonna go home. And so that was not reflected in the story and that's okay. But I did want to just be able to create a space where our experience is reflected to a certain degree so that other families like our own could feel seen, right? To see that mirror and be like, we're not the only ones. And also to open more dialogue and conversation about what does an inclusive pride space look like? You know, like what would it look like to have people who do have sensory sensitivities be able to participate in more events at Pride, because we're talking about how important community is, but how do you find community if you can't, if you can't make it, right? So that was another thing that was really critically important for me to round the story in is like, how can we start having more honest, frank, candid conversations about what inclusion really, really looks like within 
our LGBTQ community, especially now. Like, you know, I, full disclosure, I have a number of medical issues. I have mobility issues. I don't leave the house very much. And I don't know that I'd be able to attend Pride, but I would love to. I would love to be able to get out there, but it's just not made for somebody who's in the current condition like me. So what does that mean? That was really what I was getting at when I sat down over and over and over again to to refine the book because as writers we, we have a first draft and then you have a million like revisions but um yeah thank you for sharing that I, I do think that it's important for people to hear stories like marley's like yours to recognize that we're all not the same we're not a homogenous group of people we have our differences we have our limitations we have our challenges we have our superpowers and that we should all have space made for us to be seen and felt and experienced the things that are out there without reservation, without limitation, except for that which we feel compelled to extend. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. I also think when you and I first met, we talked a lot about value differences in BIPOC families, right? Like this idea of like, well, there's less individualism, more kind of responsibility towards communal care and the importance of communal care. And like, what does that look like? And how often when we would go into support spaces that were designed for parents, maybe it, it wasn't queer friendly or the advice that was given wasn't one that culturally made sense. And I feel like you've incorporated all of this, right? Like just through talking about what pride means and really who were leaders in that. It was these two BIPOC women, right? Who were at the center and, and talking about community and talking about care and like, what does that look like? Or like Marley's parents allowing agency. How do you care for yourself? And like, how do we care for you? And so it like wove all of that in there beautifully without it feeling like overwhelming if that makes sense like there it was very like like simplistic in its approach and I just valued that so much and I was like I see this I see what's happening and so I think you bring so much value into what parenting looks like for TGNC people and I want to ask you what are three pieces of advice you would give to parents who are on this journey of supporting their trans non-binary youth first and foremost and I'm sure you all have have said this a number of times but for us the most important thing is really to listen to our children to believe our children, to let them guide us and show us what they need because they know better than we do, you know, and allowing them the space to make decisions and also to change their minds and just honoring their choices. It's like such a critical component of parenting, honestly, any child, but particularly children that are trans and gender nonconforming. The next thing that I would say was to lean on community. And I know we talked earlier about, you know, us personally finding those safe spaces and our inability to do so. But I think that chosen family comes in such different shapes and forms and being able to be intentional about who you surround yourself with and surround your children with is really an important part of this journey. It's equally important to ensure that your kids have access to other trans and gender nonconforming, not just children, but adults. I think that we often forget that piece of the puzzle and just I, I compare it to interracial adoption. A family from a certain race adopts a child from a different race. The idea of ensuring that the child actually has experiences with people who share that lived that, that identity and that lived experience is so critically important to immerse them in, in their community if you don't share that identity with them. And then finally, I think I would say that to honor where you're at in the journey. 
that things shift and things change and that where you are in this moment will inevitably not be the same in a couple of months, in a couple of years. To be very frank, we, there was a lot of fear when our kid first came out and we were always super supportive and they never got a whiff of what was happening internally with us, but their identity and this journey that they were on was almost all, all consuming for us, right? It was at the forefront of everything we thought about, every step that we took. and. Not to say that that's no longer important to us, but we now see them beyond their non-binary identity. Just a kid, right? A kid who likes video games and who loves cooking. And it's there's so much more to them than just their identity. And so to understand that even though where you are at in this moment, let's say you're at the beginning of your child's journey might be terrifying and feel very isolating that you've got this, that your kid is okay, that the kids are going to be okay, and that it's really the grown-ups that need to be able to find the resources, the community to anchor themselves, and to, to give the kids the space to fly, essentially. Like, we just got to move out of the way and know they're going to be okay. Yeah. That's so true. That is so true. Lisa and I often share stories of the wisdom that our children have imparted on us and share with us because we often find that these kids are wise beyond their years. So this is kind of a funny question, but tell us something wise beyond their years that one of your children shared with you and your partner. Oh, goodness. There's so many. And I often I'm like, oh, my gosh, that's amazing. I should write that down. And then I never write it down. Right. Like we just don't because like life happens. Happens. But I think the one thing that happened recently that really struck me and I was like, holy moly, I was sitting with our oldest child. I was really stressing a lot at the time. And um, I shared with them some some truths about my own experience growing up and how we didn't have a lot and just, just a number of really personal situations because I was I was crying. I was having a hard time. And my child like came and held me and are like, you know what, mommy, it's OK. Our experience isn't like that. We're happy. We're doing good. That was just like, oh, my God you know just that self-awareness and the recognition that life is good and that sometimes we take that for granted as adults but like hearing it from a child's lens and a child's perspective I think it makes all the difference and maybe some validation too of like hey mom you're doing a good job I don't know to hear that from an eight-year-old was really was really deep for me. Oh my gosh. It's that first gen like need to excel, you know, like, and so we're just so hard on ourselves and really we're, we're those small wins are truly big wins. Was Zaza inspired by a specific character or someone in your life or is Zaza how you envision yourself like decades from now? What brought about Zaza? Huh? That's a really good question. So when I thought of Zaza, I actually thought of Marsha P. Johnson, <laughs> first and foremost. I looked at, you know, I just saw her as such an inspiration in the community and her energy was so vibrant, but also just so rooted in wanting to support her people like and that was the type of energy that I wanted Zaza to also exude uh as I mentioned unfortunately I never got to spend much time with my grandparents they passed away when I was fairly young but I have these images in my head of what our relationship would be like and the type of love and support that they would provide and so I kind of poured that into the character creating this individual who would have those characteristics that I would imagine my grandparents would have and how they would be loving and welcoming and embracing me and and that's just me but our children as they are so that's 
really what Zaza, where Zaza came from. I think that just, yeah, perhaps envisioning what I was yearning for. I can see that. I, I can totally see that. Even in the way that Zaza was drawn, was illustrated, I can see that. We often talk about the importance of community, fostering belonging. And and I really believe that Molly's Pride highlights that. And you talked about that in some of the tips that you had for parents, specifically about community for your children. So I'm going to bring you back to like giving some more parental advice. What are three things that you think parents can do to help their transgender or gender nonconforming youth build and connect with community, since it is such an important part of helping them develop into who they're ultimately going to be? Well, I will look and see if there are any local LGBTQ centers in the area. I feel like that's a, a great first start. I don't know how common they are around the country. I think it really depends on where you live. But if there's something that they could attend in person, I think that's a great way of connecting to other children that have similar experiences. I am personally part of a number of online spaces for parents of trans and gender non-conforming children. And in the process, we've connected our children to some of the kids whose parents are in those groups. And so I would suggest, you know, look online, find some safe spaces online where you feel comfortable meeting with people. And in the process, maybe the kids can find connection as well. I mean, I feel like post-pandemic, we recognize the value of the digital space and really leaning on that. It could be a great resource, obviously within measure, but it could be a really great resource to help people to find, find community. For us personally, we, we homeschool and we've been able to find some progressive liberal homeschool communities that specifically are focused on diversity and inclusion. And that's where we started. And in the process, we're able to make quite a few connections and quite a few friends. In fact, that's where our kid met their best friend who who's also non-binary and they are tied at the hip, like truly call each other every single day. It's been too long after it's been a day since they've seen each other type of relationship and it's made all the difference in the world. So I guess I could step back, I said, exploring the local landscape to see if there are any pride centers, perhaps even like PIFA chapters, although those primarily focus on connecting adults. Sometimes they do have like groups for the children to engage with as well. Online spaces might also be another opportunity to connect children with other trans and gender non-conforming peers. And then finally, turning to the schools and seeing if there are any GSAs that are currently operational. If not, perhaps exploring whether people are willing to stand up their own GSAs and looking to local organizations that have some knowledge sets or national organizations like HRC and GLSEN that can provide insights into how to form your own program within your own institution. Thank you for sharing all of that with us. And thank you for taking the time today. Our final question is, what other projects do you have coming along? Are you working on any other books? What do you want to plug? Yeah, I do have a few other projects that are in the process let's say the dough making phase, right? They're not in the oven yet. The pizza isn't cooked just yet. So I can't share too much about it, but there are things forthcoming and I'm excited to, to let everybody know once I'm free to announce them. But otherwise, really pouring a lot of effort into Marley and getting the word out about this really special book. I look forward to letting you all know what else is happening once I get the green light. What's our release date for Marley's Pride? April the 2nd. So just a couple of weeks from now. All right. And where can folks pre-order that you can pre-order it on bookshop.org which is 
for more local small independent booksellers so please if you're if you're pre-ordering it think about your local bookstores otherwise it is available on amazon and barnes and noble as well joelle thank you so much for joining us this has been an absolute treat i am so happy you accepted our invitation and joined us on this humble little podcast of ours <laughs> thank you so thank much you so much it was great i appreciate it Bye. Bye. Thank you. Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisa, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is Lyft. This week, Lyft, the rideshare service, announced that they are expanding their safety feature to pair women and non-binary riders and drivers. Lyft launched the gender-inclusive safety preference in September 2023 for users in Chicago, Phoenix, San Diego, San Francisco, and San Jose. But now, Lyft users in New York City, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Miami, Las Vegas, and Dallas can make sure to use the feature. Since it was initially launched, over 7 million eligible riders have turned on the feature. Over half of eligible women and non-binary drivers have opted into the feature, too. This is huge. Knowing that you'll be able to get a ride without worrying about being judged, misgendered, or attacked must be so reassuring for riders. And this is why Lyft is our ally. Wow, congratulations to Lyft. All right, now on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. Robinson, the frontrunner to replace Democratic Governor Roy Cooper, said at a campaign event that trans women who use public toilets will be arrested and suggested that they find a corner outside somewhere to relieve themselves. Now, Robinson has previously suggested that trans people are filth and the work of the Antichrist and that straight people are superior to members of the LGBTQ plus community. Robinson's from the Tar Heel State, which has passed several anti-LGBTQ plus laws limiting LGBTQ plus education in schools and trans youth's participation in school sports, as well as banning certain gender-affirming care procedures. Stephen, I'm not surprised. Robinson's comments are consistent with the anti-LGBTQ trend across the U.S., which has seen hundreds of anti-LGBTQ bills introduced in the first few months of 2024 alone. And that's why North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Joelle Retner, for joining us. And of course, I'd like to thank my co-host, the incomparable Lisette Trujillo for rocking with me. Thanks, Stephen. You know I got you. And of course, we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. And folks, please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things you need to do to stay up to date with everything going on here at the Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, Get immediate support. Please reach out to the Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24 7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.